1: star wars 7x7 episode 701 today we complete our interview with chris taylor author of how star wars conquered the universe punch it chewy hi this is mike and joe from the cantina cast and you're listening to star wars 7x7 the only daily star wars podcast Hey, Rebel Rouser. Welcome to Star Wars 7 by 7 I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and thank you so much for all the kind words and feedback about us hitting our 700th episode milestone. If you had any idea how many times I've had to record and re-record myself saying 700th episode, that is not something I expected to be a tongue twister, but it turns out it really is, actually. But I'm very grateful to you for all the feedback that you've shared about us hitting that milestone. And I'd love to jump right back into where we left off yesterday and get with episode 701. It's the second half of our interview with Chris Taylor, the author of How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. I'm glad you mentioned Pablo because hearing his voice come out of what is essentially a large corporation even be, even before Disney owned Lucasfilm, it was still a large corporation and to have that kind of free speaking voice is really rather remarkable and mm. the Rogue one situation this is I think where I think a lot of fans had fears about Disney taking over Lucasfilm and the franchise because you know as you said, we want people to approach Star Wars without reverence and to be able to freely invent it and put their stamp on it and not become slaves to it but the the sources that are being quoted, all these anonymous Hollywood sources are suggesting that it's Disney executives that are involved in the decision to scale back on Rogue One, that Gareth Edwards delivered a war movie which is exactly what he was supposed to do and that it's um, Disney folks that are saying eh, maybe we kind of have to back off on this
2: hmm yeah, that that is that is troubling if true. Um but like a lot of reports at this stage of the game, um, things can get very confused. Uh I hope that Disney remembers that Lucasfilm function functions best as an independent ent- entity. Um, certainly they would have no reason to doubt that. It turned out, you know, the uh, best selling movie of all time in the US. So um They should probably be trusted to know what they're doing. Uh, And certainly that has been a successful strategy with Pixar and with Marvel, to Mm -hmm. to leave well alone and let them come up with the goods. Um, You know, I was on tour with uh, Timothy Zahn at the end of last year, and he, he loves to use the phrase about how Disney's business strategy with Lucasfilm is to back up, you know, one dump truck of money, leave it there, come back, two days later for two dump trucks of money, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, I think is a great analogy. I mean, I hope that's what they're doing. Um, We'll, we'll see more, more will come out. Uh, Obviously we have to see what the result is. Maybe there were just a few scenes that they didn't like. Um, You know, maybe there were amputations that were a little more bloody than the ones we've seen (laughs) in the series. Uh, I mean, maybe there's actual blood in it, which would be a departure, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, you know, we were we were taught the visual language of Star Wars within the first three minutes of A New Hope, right? There's this battle uh, on board the Tantive IV, um and and it's completely bloodless. You know, people people die like they did in old cowboy films. Mm-hmm. Um, And obviously, saving Private Ryan in space would not be bloodless. So maybe, you know, I mean, traditionally, executives have worried about this because this is one of the few things they can worry about. Right. Is, you know, how much actual gore are we going to see on the screen? That would be my completely, you know, knowledge free guess for what's going on here. Hmm. But um, but yeah, we'll we'll know more history will tell.
1: And now of course that sends my brain spinning to wondering exactly how many movies in which we've seen blood in the Star Wars saga. I think it's two. I think it's just Star Wars and Empire.
2: Mm. Yeah, where is it in Empire?
1: Um in the Wampa Cave.
2: Ah uh, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, those Wampas, they they just don't tidy up after themselves.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Very messy those Wampas, I yeah, agree. Yeah. <laughs> um you know, mentioning the the dump truck <laughs> analogy, you know, this is something that, um, you know, I. this is something that I've been thinking about too in terms of Lucasfilm. Like they're, hopefully they are not just merely engaged in the exercise of, of carefully milking a sacred cow with Lucasfilm. But um, I think one of the things, and I, I made an assumption, and you'll have to tell me whether I'm correct about this, but I think you and I share an assumption that the one of the secrets of success of Star Wars in the past has been its scarcity in the movies. Mm. The fact that, you know, it took twenty eight years to get six Star Wars movies and now we're gonna have six Star Wars movies in the span of six years. Right. And, you know, is this something that is going to work out for Disney and for Lucasfilm? Like are they going to wear us out? And, you know, we were just talking about earlier you know the the insatiable appetite media wise for for fans to be talking about and discussing the star wars movies or or other sectors of fandom too is it possible that we are going to essentially make it ordinary by the fact that we're going to not make it as scarce anymore
2: well i think as as in any economy you know and scarcity is an economic term so let's talk about economy it's all relative Mm -hmm. um and if you look at relative scarcity of, say, Marvel movies, of which we get, what, how many a year? Two or two,
0: three.
2: Two or three now. I mean, it's they used to be pretty scarce, and they've ramped up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the dump truck of money is heading over to Marvel more frequently than it did. Um, yeah. And we yet yeah, we still love it. I mean, uh, Civil War was probably one of the best, if not the best, Marvel movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean a downsizing of quality. Um, and I think you have to remember, I mean, you know, 28 years is, it's a little disingenuous to talk about the, the, the time gap in, uh, Star Wars in those terms. I know you don't, didn't intend it this way, but it's, you know, three years was the, was the traditional gap between movies. Right. Right. And then George decided to take a, a decade or two off mm-hmm. in between. Um, <clears throat> but three years was the was the norm, and that's what we got used to. And, you know, you and I remember that that sense of really having to wait yes. for years at a time and having uh, books and comics to fill the gap and action figures to fill the gap and having to get really creative. Um, but times have changed, and, and that was, let us never forget, an independent filmmaker yes. trying to make the best film he could and taking three years to do it. Um, nowadays, you could get the same result by hiring three times as many people, mm-hmm. and movies have gotten more expensive, partly for that reason, uh, it's because you're, you know, you are bringing a dump truck of employees <laughs> up to Lucasfilm, um, or up to ILM, or you know, to Singapore, or uh, wherever the, else the work is being done. Uh, you know, a dump truck full of animators saying let's you know it's us get, get to work boys we got we got less than a year to finish the CGI on this thing whereas you know in previous years it might have been you know just Rick McCallum shouting at a lot of people <laughs> um, so so the world has changed uh, Lucasfilm's resources have changed uh, our expectations have changed and I don't think that we're going to get saturation because I think that comparatively speaking um a Star Wars movie every year um, or or less than every year, possibly in some cases, you know, we've noticed that the dates can shift. Yes. Um, Is, is still going to feel like an awful long time. Um, We're still going to have plenty of time to digest and to talk about the cliffhangers and to come up with theories. Um, you know, for some people, a week between Game of Thrones episodes is a long time. So, yes, a year for <laughs> <laughs> modern generations, a year is, uh, you know, is all, an almost unimaginable space of time.
1: Yeah, it's a fair point for sure, and I. I- you know, you could liken that to say the uh, the way Netflix, for example, releases whole seasons at a time. Is it better to you know sit and wait week for week of the Game of Thrones episodes, or is it better mm. to just let the whole season play out so you can binge it all at once, as we get to do with say Daredevil or Jessica Jones or the like?
2: I know that they're starting to pull that back. I mean, I know that Hulu is experimenting more and more with the once a week strategy, mm-hmm. um, which I think I think they they must have seen that the dumping House of Cards all at once, you know, fills us with anxiety and the need to stay up all night to finish it. So (laughs) maybe, you know, there'll be an equilibrium and we'll we'll maybe go back to something closer to the every week model.
1: (laughs) Well, I I wanted to ask you to just as a professional writer, because, of course, in addition to your work on the book, and you're working on a second book, too. I'll digress and and see if there's anything you would like to share about the second book that you're working on right now. (laughs)
2: Yes, the second book is about utopia and uh, essentially creating a new utopia um, because we haven't had a utopian narrative in our culture since the mid-1970s. So this is sort of a self-conscious attempt to do that um, where I show my working and talk to lots of people and basically crowdsource utopia. Um, It has a little bit of a Star Wars connection in the sense that part of what I'm talking about is, well, hey, you know, when we... When we think Star Wars, we what we really love is this dystopian galactic empire and the struggle against that, right? And we weren't quite as interested in the uh, utopian republic of, you know, Buddhist monk Jedi Knights, um, you know, because that, that really didn't provide us with any drama, which is the, the constant bugbear of creating any utopian narrative is how do you inject the drama into it? Uh, so that's that's the second book. Um, but yeah I'll, I will be announcing more on that um, probably very shortly
1: excellent and congratulations in advance on it and that's that's part of the problem with Star Trek isn't it I mean that's yeah. more of a utopian narrative by comparison
2: exactly and that, that's definitely in there as well as this uh, that, that Gene Roddenberry dictum that um, the crew can't fight because it's a utopia mm-hmm. <laughs> they have everything they want why would they fight um <laughs> which of course is ridiculous you know even in utopia you're going to have uh people having cranky days um mm-hmm. never going to legislate that out of human behavior but but yeah you know it's uh it is it is a constant problem and um a very interesting book just came out this week um Treknomics. and um you can uh, you can pick that one up on amazon but it it explores in further detail this question of well you know in this future utopia where you have replicators um, providing everything that the the worlds of Star Trek could want, um, what does that actually look like? What does the economy of that world look like with extreme abundance? Mm, so, well worth checking that out.
1: All right, thank you very much for the recommendation. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I want to ask you on the on the track of being a professional mm-hmm. writer, the the real burning question I have here is you can approach the the conversation about lucas's own writing process f- with a a very specific hat on because you know what it's like to be a professional writer and hmm. um you know it could be easy for you it might not be easy for you but um you know i wouldn't necessarily say i'm a professional writer but i certainly write for a living every day so i think i i think i kind of qualify in in some sense but comparatively lucas you report finds the writing process hugely difficult and in the book it's basically likened to a bloodletting so just mm. why if it's that hard for someone like why would he do it do you have any insight on on why he would just be so obsessed to do it even though the process was so painful and i'll have a follow-up for you on that in a moment i i
2: think uh if we you know if we knew the answer to that, it would be great writing advice. Um, I think George George should probably write a writing advice book. Um, you know, I think he'd, he'd probably be very good at it because he he was never a writer. He never thought of himself as a writer. He was forced into writing by Francis Ford Coppola on uh, THX. Um, you know, just because they couldn't find anyone else to. Uh, do a satisfactory draft, you know, he wanted to, he wanted someone else to write New Hope even, you know, he wanted someone else to write American Graffiti, he's never wanted to do that job Um, and has it gotten easier? Probably not, I mean he did write all those multiple drafts very quickly for the prequels but at the same time settling them into a form that he was happy with took him right up to the beginning of filming almost every time so I mean, it is difficult. It's, you know, you, and it's difficult, especially for a perfectionist. Um, and that is clearly what, what Lucas is. And it is, um, a tendency I've had to try to, to throttle in myself. <laughs> um, because if you're a perfectionist, you'll never get anything done, right? The perfect is the enemy of the good. Right. Um, and, uh, I think that has long been his problem, certainly been my problem. And it's, it's always a problem when you sit down to write and you've got this burning idea and you know exactly what the story is in your head and you've, you've seen it and it's fantastic. And if you can just transfer it from your head onto paper, which seems like the easiest thing in the world, <laughs> um, you know, then the, the world will see the same vision and you'll be hailed as a genius far and wide. Um, and it doesn't work that way. As soon as you start to turn that perfect thought into these sloppy imperfect words um you're like well what's what's going wrong why is it, this looks nothing like what i had in my head this is rubbish <laughs> um and that's i mean this is um, you know <clears throat> pardon my french but the the shitty first draft is what all writers uh advise you to write and that's that's uh Phrase from Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott Mm -hmm. and one of the best pieces of writing advice there is Mm -hmm. Um, you always have to you have to allow that shitty first draft to exist it's got to breathe it's got to be there in the world and then you rewrite it you know Um, and you you become ruthless about killing the things that don't work and uh, it's been said many times all of writing is rewriting Um, and it's absolutely true but you have to get through that first stage So I imagine for a perfectionist like George, I mean, you know, he talked about how, you know, you beat your head against a wall and you say, why isn't this working? Why can't I make it work? Uh, And you just know that he had these fabulous visions of this Flash Gordon-esque space opera, which would be fun and light and free and full of aliens and starships. But, you know, having that general idea for for the style of a story is not the same as having a story that people will care about. Right. Um And to his credit on a new hope, he was, he was so much better at tossing out stuff that didn't work and writing completely fresh drafts every time. Um. So, but yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's runners will tell you that when you run the first mile, even if you're a professional, the first mile always sucks. <laughs> always. Yeah. Even if you ran for the last 15 days and your body is totally used to that first mile sucks. And I think the, the same is true of writing. Um, you sit down at the computer and you're sort of, or, you know, if you're, you favor a notebook, um, as George does, you, you know, you sit down with pencil in hand and the words start dribbling out. And you become so self-conscious. And you're like, what the hell is that? What am I? Am I a writer? Are these words? <laughs> You know, uh, I've been I've been doing this for years. Why, why does it still look like crap when I start writing? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but you just you know, like the runner always has to accept that that thing about the first mile. You just have to accept that thing about the first page. Mm-hmm. It always sucks. And the people who succeed are the people who persist and just keep going and going and going after draft after draft after draft. And maybe they're you know, maybe there's something a little bit wrong with them or. Maybe they're just too egotistical to stop, um, but whatever it is, it powers them forward. Um, so yeah, I can <clears throat> totally understand and empathize with every everything that George has ever said about the bloodletting of writing.
1: Do you think that he just became kind of calcified in a way in the prequel trilogy, just in the sense that it was he was much more of a perfectionist than he. Than he was with the original trilogy, or was he forced into not being a perfectionist, almost having to accept that concept of creative uh, creative limitation, which everybody says mm. is a, a fantastic thing as much as we creators rail against it and would rather not be limited. The fact that having a creative limitation will actually force you to come up with more creative ideas, and that ultimately you know he he got trapped within his own lack of limitation.
2: Yeah th- That's definitely part of it I think a number of things were going on um, First of all he was Revered and hailed And given awards At every juncture um, During the writing of the prequel trilogy And people were so excited You know fans were Expecting the second coming And uh, You know there was That's a lot of pressure to put it on a guy mm-hmm. But also it's a lot of Stuff to go to a guy's head, um, and the stuff that he starts saying. I mean, you know, as you know, throughout the book, I call him the creator, and that's because of this this anecdote on the Conan O'Brien show where he <clears throat> he talks about I'm not just the decider, as George the other George W was. <laughs> uh, I am the creator, and um, and I think that that had the ring of something he'd been saying over and over, um, sort of as a joke. But kind of reveals something, as jokes often do, about the teller, yes. um, about the way that he is, you know, he says his, his employees call him God and his children call him garbage. <laughs> um, <clears throat> which, you know, nice that he's got the grounding from the kids, but right. if you work at a company where, where everyone works for you and reveres you and talks about how great their childhood was because of you. That's bound to inflate your self-opinion, even if you don't want it to. Um, so I think that was going on. And whereas during the writing, the original star Wars, he was, people were reading it going, what the hell? What What <laughs> does this mean? What are you talking about? Who are these droids? I don't get it. Um, you know, and, and maybe only uh, had one cheerleader in the form of Francis. Um, so that, that definitely keeps you on your toes. It gives you something to prove. um, I think the other thing though that was going on with the prequels is that he, he was he was a little bit tired I think I think he wanted it over um and I always go back to the the uh, you know I think uh, I know a lot of people have issues with Simon Pegg but let me uh <clears throat> let me bring up Simon Pegg as a uh, as a witness
1: Certainly um, polarizing, which is, you know, <laughs> not always a bad thing. You know, it's almost better to have somebody care one way or the other than not care indeed. about you at all.
2: But Simon Pegg was there at the premiere for uh, Revenge of the Sith. And according to his report, George Lucas said to him, you know, what Lucas was sort of did that perfunctory thing of, oh, hello. Hello, Mr. Pegg. How are you? Nice to meet you. But then when he was told, oh, you know, oh, you're a filmmaker, then his eyes light up and he's like, you know, wants to engage him in conversation more. <clears throat> and the one thing he said that the peg took with him was he leaned in close and he said, just make sure you're not making the same movie 30 years later.
1: <laughs>
2: and George likes to exaggerate things obviously. And, uh, you know, and, and says some shocking things sometimes, but, mm-hmm. um, but I think that that was very telling in the sense that he always wanted to go and make his independent films. Right, he was always an independent filmmaker, always a student filmmaker. Just wanted to, kept talking about it, kept putting it off, putting it off. The ultimate in procrastination is, is George Lucas's independent films, mm-hmm. um, and I, I mean truly independent in the sense that you know he doesn't even care about whether they're released or not. Right, um, and he is apparently making those now. Uh, we'll see uh, if, if they ever come to light, but. Um, but yeah, I think that he just wanted to get on with it. I mean the the original timeline for the prequels was something like uh, you know, he would be done by the year two thousand. Remember that? Yes, he yes. Was, he was gonna film them all at once or as close as back to back as possible. Um, and uh, you know, and they were gonna be done in you know, ninety six was gonna be the first one, ninety five even. I mean, he, he has some ridiculous timeline.
1: And two years in between instead of three. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: exactly. But I think he really wanted to get it out of the way and and have most of his fifties to himself. Um, and it didn't work out that way. But uh, but yeah, I think that's part of what was going on. As you can tell, there's there's a certain exhaustion creeping in, and you can see it, you know, in the in the candid footage of him on the set. You know, kind of slumped in his chair with a giant, you know venti starbucks latte <laughs> uh <clears throat> just trying to keep himself awake through this uh you know and he, he's mr mom at the same time he's raising three kids mm-hmm. uh which he was not doing with the original trilogy so that would have that would have made anyone exhausted um so yeah a lot of factors in that but i think that's uh you know it's, it's not just the reverence and it's not just creative limitation uh as as in life there are many many complicated factors involved mm-hmm.
1: So it seems like perhaps the the new maxim of Lucasfilm might be um, to make Star Wars, you have to hate George Lucas. (laughs) Well, or not revere him. Mm -hmm. Right. Only meant in the uh, metaphorical sense. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chris, thank you so much for... All the time that you've uh, given so generously to um, this interview. I have one more question that Mm. I'm actually surprised I did not ask this of you the last time that we spoke in celebration last year. and it's one that we like to ask folks that we get to interview on the podcast, if there's one thing you could change about any or all of the Star Wars movies, and we exempt the special edition changes because that's just such an easy go-to, um, so no picking on there, but if there's yeah. one thing you could change about any or all of them, what would it be and why? Um, I I mean, it's, it
2: is too easy to rag on the prequels as well, and, and maybe that should be uh, rule number two, but <laughs> um, no, it's it's not... Excuse me. Let me get specific about uh, what what I would change about the prequels. Um, I, I would do what Lawrence Kasdan told Lucas to do, what or would have told Lucas to do if he'd, you know, agreed to become involved in the Phantom Menace. Um, you know, don't make the hero a nine year old kid. Mm. Uh, maybe two things. You know, decide who the hero of that film is, and then don't make him a nine year old kid, or maybe just. Maybe to make it simpler, um, you know, I still would like the age change in Anakin uh, and to have him played by the same actor throughout the prequel trilogy. Um, I think that would be very interesting indeed <clears throat> if we'd seen the same actor grow and develop through three films instead of two. Um, maybe it's just trust that your original draft, uh, you know, that, that first draft, The Phantom Menace, where Jar Jar Binks talks like a sage, you know, and, and, um, Anakin, uh, does way more interesting things that prove what a great pilot he is. Uh, basically, he does the, the hand solo maneuver from The Force Awakens with Naboo, right? He, he, he punches right through the blockade in that original draft. Oh. Um, where he's, you know, no pilot has ever done that. Uh, you know, he, he lands right above the surface of the planet. It's supposed to be this amazing thing. And you remember the, um, you know, I mean we all adored the, the trailer for the Phantom Menace. Right. Right. That was that was full of such possibility. The one kind of glimpse that we got in that trailer that I keep going back to is where you see uh, Anakin in front of the Pod Racer crowd and um, and the whole crowd sees him and stands up and cheers. And my little bit of headcanon when I saw that trailer was, Oh, there's there's something really spooky about this kid. You know, he can get whole crowds to cheer for him. Mm-hmm. You know, just... And I, I didn't think... I, I guess I thought it was more like a Trump rally than uh, than a pod race. Ah! Oh. Uh, <laughs> not to get too political, but, you know, that, that sense that he was this uh, demagogue almost without knowing it. Mm-hmm. You know, that he had such immense force power. Um, so I, I would have liked to have seen that more... Um, I guess that that would be my one major change. I'd really love to have seen a better treatment of the the political scenes because I love political dramas. Um I think you know West Wing and Space would have been a great premise mm-hmm. for the uh, for the prequels. Um you know way more backroom dealings and shenanigans. Um less of the unrealistic, you know, oh representative binks, you know, here. Introduce this bill that's going to change the entire government of the galaxy. (laughs) Sure. Um, But something that maybe would have made that more believable. I would love to have seen a a more adult political treatment of the Senate, because I think that 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 would have just blown the top of my head off. I think uh, it had such potential. Um, You know, we've been waiting to see the Galactic Senate since we'd heard it been disbanded. (laughs) in <laughs> 1977 um, and uh, yeah it didn't quite live out to that potential but you know I don't want to rag on the prequels too much I I, I know how many people love them and I, I try to love them as much as I can um, and uh, but yeah I think that you know if, if George had just had the, the courage of his original convictions um, it would have gone a long way towards fixing uh, the problems of the Phantom Menace and if he had just Had Anakin at the higher end of the age range that he was looking at in his notes, that would have made a significant difference, too. So way too long an answer, but there you go.
1: No, it's (laughs) tremendous. I'm actually rather startled by it because that has been my answer for quite a while. And I was unaware of some of the stuff that you mentioned about the first drafts of The Phantom Menace and about Kasdan's Mm. advice about not doing doing uh Anakin as a kid. Like that's it's shocking to hear that I that I had a similar opinion on mm. it. Um, I mean it's easy to be you know
2: it's easy to have hindsight yes. and to be an armchair quarterback. So you know, he, he shot the best film that he could and um and I'm sure that he himself <clears throat> once he saw the rushes saw some of the problems with um with, with Jake Lloyd and, you know, with putting the whole movie on his shoulders. But
1: uh, you know. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Yeah. And at least we have our political drama with Bloodline, the novel, so. (laughs)
2: Indeed. Indeed. What a great novel that was.
1: Yes, absolutely. All right, sir. Well, Chris Taylor, author of How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, Senior Editor with Mashable. Senior Editor, correct?
2: Uh, I have a number of titles, but sure, we'll go with that one.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with us, and best wishes to you and yours, and we hope your voice gets better much sooner than, than later. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. I'm glad it held up for the whole broadcast. As am I. Thank you for talking with us. Take care. All right, that's going to do it for our interview with Chris Taylor, author of How Star Wars Conquered the Universe and a senior editor at Mashable. And like I said yesterday, it's been 388 episodes since we last had him on. I think I need to make it fewer than that next time. And I'd love to hear from you on who you would like to hear be interviewed on the podcast. Share your comments at the blog post for this show's episode at SW7x7.com. Hey, Rebel Rouser all right time for a trivia question for you red
2: squad blue squad take my lead i'm
1: on it last time back on thursday episode 699 we asked you what the force awakens has in common with the phantom menace in terms of its lightsaber use and that's no dismemberments today's question remember that scene on takadana where finn is watching poe fly around shooting tie fighters and he yells that's one hell of a pilot how many tie fighters did poe shoot down in that stretch Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before you ride your tauntaun past the first marker, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And please support the podcast by joining us on Patreon at patreon.com SW7x7. It's not a forced ghost vision, it's destiny unleashed.